to Intentionally Grown. I am your host, Brian Willey, along with my co-host, John Kesslering. Episode 92 features former Texas Longhorn, NFL player, and Green Beret, Nate Boyer. Nate discusses with us his journey to football, his service to our country, and the unique perspective that he has shared to help use his platform to bring more awareness to social change. Season 4, Episode 14 of Intentionally Grounded with Nate Boyer starts now. We're joined today by former NFL long snapper and Green Beret, Nate Boyer. Nate, introduce yourself to our audience. Well, I, uh, I'm from the Bay Area in California, grew up there. Um, after high school, moved down to San Diego and eventually up to Los Angeles for a bit, doing odd jobs, working on fishing boat. Um, working in a restaurant, you know, working with uh, children diagnosed with autism. And, uh, and then 9-11 happened. And uh, I didn't join the military right away, but it got me thinking about it. Got it kind of got me thinking outside my bubble. And I, I was, I'd save my money up and I'd go backpack somewhere. And that eventually brought me to uh, Africa, uh, to, to Darfur uh, specifically in Sudan. And, and uh, I did some relief work out there for a while. And at the end of that mission, I, uh, I was convinced and sure that I was ready for the military and it was the right thing for me at that time. So I joined the military, um, like you said, became a Green Beret, uh, served in the Special Forces for roughly 10 years. And the last four of those years, I was in the Texas National Guard. And uh, I went back to college at that time and played football at the University of Texas and then briefly had a stint with the Seattle Seahawks uh, at 34 34- years old actually <laughs> so that's sort of the uh that's the long story short <laughs> now nate until you played football at the university of texas you really hadn't spent much time around the game growing up so looking back what do you believe had maybe an impact on holding you back from playing so much as a young age yeah i mean i i loved football i was a 49ers fan um growing up in the bay and i was lucky as a fan to have uh, such a great team you know we won five Super Bowls over the course of about oh, 12 years or so. So my, my, my young life, you know, we were, a, we were the winning, we were a winning team. Uh, and football was always kind of my favorite sport, but I just didn't play when I was younger. I played baseball, I played basketball, I played soccer. Um, and uh, when I was really young, you know, my, my mom didn't want me to start playing super early. So I kind of waited. And um, by the time I was old enough to, to play and I'd kind of caught up, you know, I was a, I was a late bloomer. I kind of caught up in, in size. Um, I just didn't have a lot of confidence that I'd be able to start, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to try for the team and get cut or end up riding the bench. So I just never did it. And it bothered me. And, and you know, as I grew in years and later in life, I kind of had that regret of like not playing. It sounds silly maybe, but it was just something that, you know, sports were so important in my life. And I just, I wish I would have at least tried. And so I decided to finally try at the age of 29. Now, you kind of mentioned this earlier, kind of in your introduction, but what motivated you to want to join the armed forces and serve as a Green Beret? Was it that 9-11 experience or was there a little bit more to the story? You know, 9-11 definitely uh, kind of opened my eyes to that. I mean, even before that, when I was when I was 17 years old, I had a, a recruiter come over to my house uh, and, you know, talk to my folks and I was interested and maybe I'd join the army, but I think I was more just 
interested and not serious about it. It was like, I kind of knew, you know, I wasn't a good enough, enough athlete uh, to get any scholarship offers, at least out of high school for, for baseball or basketball. And I just had no desire to go to college, you know, because I wasn't going to play sports. And so I just didn't, uh, didn't even consider it. And I, uh, uh, so I was like, well, what else, you know, the, the military seems like a log logical choice. So I had, I had him over and, you know, it wasn't right for me at the time, like I said, and then three years later, nine 11 happens. And even then it was like, I was thinking about it seriously again, but it just didn't, didn't seem right. It didn't seem like the right time. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then when I was over in Africa, I actually got malaria at the end of this, uh, uh, uh volunteering mission where I was doing some relief work over there. And the, the fam family that took care of me and nursed me back to health, they put this radio in my room, the, the little cot they'd set me up on. And, and on the radio, I was listening to the BBC, um, news and they were covering the second battle of Fallujah. And this is in 2004. And I'm like laying there listening to this. And at the time I was 23 years old and, you know, a lot of my friends are graduating college and kind of starting their lives and careers. And, um, not that I was super jealous of, of just finding a career for the sake of finding a career, but uh, I felt like I didn't, I, I needed to find a more specific purpose. And it, it just kind of made sense at that moment to join. And, you know, we were, we were already in Afghanistan. We were, we were, we were in Iraq at this time. And it was like the surge was happening. So we we're bolstering the unit. I get back to the States and I find out about the 18 x-ray program. And it was something that the army it had introduced, uh, I should say reintroduced in 2003. Uh, they'd used this tactic back during Vietnam to get, uh, to get more people interested in, uh, in applying for the special forces. So you didn't have to be in the army. You could be off the street like me. And if you passed a physical exam and, you know, certain scores on PT tests and also, you know, a psychological eval language aptitude tests, all these things, um, you sat there, you know, you sat down with a shrink and they made, made sure you were sane or at least somewhat <laughs> sane. And uh, if you pass all that stuff. You'd get basically a ticket to special forces selection. If you, made it through basic training, airborne school, and then a pre-selection course. And then if you, after you go through special forces selection, which is pretty grueling, it's about, it's about three weeks long and uh, maybe a little long, three and a half weeks, something like that. And it's a lot of land navigation and, you know, team related activities, similar to what they do in, in the Navy with the buds for the seals, less water, but very similar uh, idea behind it. If you make it through that, then you start your, you know, year to year and a half long training to be a Green Beret. And, uh, you know, so like for my class, I think 145 of us from, uh, uh, that were in my, my basic training uh, between the four battalions, or excuse me, between the four platoons in our battalion. Uh, I think 145 of us had that 18 x-ray contract and only, I think only 11 of us actually went on to earn the Green Beret. So huh. they, they, they brought a lot of us in through that, um, that means, but then it was, you know, a matter of people self-selecting out or, you know, having injuries or just deciding it, you know, it wasn't for them. And, uh, and, uh, they would, they would go to other units in the military, you know, to the infantry, to the airborne infantry, the needs of the army, basically. But, uh, I made it through and, you know, I, I was part of that group and, um, 
so even though I was only in the army, I'd only been in the army, you know, not even two years, uh, I was now a green beret and, and, you know, able to deploy and, and serve in a special forces unit. Now, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are coaches and, and they're looking for ways in which to, you know, apply a lot of the team building and cultural lessons as they can into their programs. And so, you know, when you look at your experience in the military or possibly your military training, do you believe there's anything about your military training or from your experience in the military that could be applicable to the team building or player development um, in any of our listeners' programs? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean... I'm one of these people, there's, there's certain people in the veteran community that kind of shy away or aren't comfortable with um, you know, coaches and sports sort of using some of the uh, same verbiage, you know, that we use in the military, but I'm not one of those people. I, I, I understand they're not talking about actual, actually going to war, actually going to combat. I mean, they're not, in my opinion, they're not making that kind of comparison. Um, and so it doesn't bother me. I think it's, uh, and even beyond that, what's more important is just the preparation um, and the, the sacrifice it takes to be elite. Uh, those things are very similar. And uh, I mean, that's why I, I, uh, I work in the nonprofit space with Jay Glazer where we bring together former professional athletes and combat veterans because they do have a similar experience and it does take that kind of trust um, with the man or woman on your left and right uh, you know, to, to succeed on the battlefield, but also on the playing field. Um, the best teams out there are ones that, uh, where the individual players, obviously they're, they're, they're talented and, and, uh, and, um, you know, they, they, they work hard and they give everything they have on the field. But when it's, when it's more about making sure the, the person next to you is successful and that they're safe, and that you're doing everything you can to make uh, their job, I don't want to say easier, but to make their job, uh, uh, to, to give them a better, give them a better opportunity to be in the right place at the right time as well. Uh, it really does make a difference. Um, you know, you can have a team full of great athletes, but if each one of them, uh, uh, you know, wants the ball all the time, uh, then it's just not going to work. Uh, that's not the kind of teams that win. And, uh, so yeah, I, I I think there's there's so many similarities. That locker room is very similar. Um, you know, when you when you when you sweat with somebody, whether you bleed or not, <laughs> when you work hard and sweat with somebody and go through something tough like a training camp, uh, there's a certain amount of respect garnered between each other. And you might not even like the person. You may never hang out um, outside the uh, the chalk lines, you know. <laughs> but it, it doesn't matter. Like there's there's just there's stuff that you. Uh, that you respect about that person is the same in the military. Most of the people I served with, I, I wasn't friends with really, you know, I didn't have, it doesn't mean I was like enemies with them, but in those moments, you know, when the bullets start flying, um, I feel confident, I feel safe and I feel like I know they have my back no matter what, because they know I, I have theirs, you know, and that's the way that we train. So it goes beyond this, uh, you know, sort of the superficial um, um, buddy stuff, you know, it's much deeper than that. Now, one of the interesting things that just kind of floored me as I was doing some research on you in your professional career, and then also your career with the Longhorns is that, you know, as you go to the University of Texas, and you're trying to earn this starting position, you choose to do it in a position that you've never played before. And that was that long snapper. And, you know, to make 
matters a little bit more challenging. You then are teaching yourself how to long snap while you are deployed to Afghanistan, which is just absolutely fascinating to me. So first, how do you keep this dream alive in you to go out and become a long snapper for a collegiate football program while serving your country? And then to make matters even more difficult, you've never done this before. Talk to us a little bit about that experience. Yeah. I mean, when I tried out for the team, when I came back and walked on, you know, I transitioned from the, uh, from active duty to the national guard, to the Texas national guard. And, you know, I, I, I was confident I could potentially make the team if I just, uh, went as hard as I could and <laughs> on everything, you know, and it would, it would be some a situation where they're, they'd have to let me on the scout team at least. Um, and so I did that and I, I was in good condition. I was in really good uh, from an endurance standpoint, really good shape. And so I made it on the team and that was great. But like, once I made it after uh, kind of that first season of just being on the scout team and, you know, I was playing defensive back, uh, and I quickly also realized that there's just no way there's a, my talent level only allowed me to do so much at a place like Texas. I just wasn't going to, I wasn't fast enough. I couldn't keep up with these receivers. So I don't want to, I, I you know, they were never going to put me on the field if I was a liability, no matter how hard I try and how hard I work, it doesn't matter. Um, well, uh, it's not that it doesn't matter. It just doesn't make me a starting uh, defensive back. I just, that's not, uh, that's not what, <laughs> that's not the possibility for me. And so I was like, well, how else can I find a way on the field? Like how else can I play meaningful snaps? Because there's gotta be a way, there's gotta be a job out there that I can do. And, and uh, I found the most thankless job on the field, which was long snapping, um, which is, a, you know, it's a special skill too. Like you have to be consistent. You have to have a, a decent arm um you know you got to be able to whip it back there and it's so funny this comes up because i had a dream about long snapping last night <laughs> i dreamt i was still playing in texas and somehow i had another year of eligibility and uh they just like expected me to snap and i was i just remember thinking like i haven't snapped a football like for besides at the beach with friends uh in like five years <laughs> this could this could get ugly uh but anyway you know, so I, I started practicing long snapping. I was watching YouTube videos and, and just kind of learning the craft of it. And I went overseas. Uh, so the, the deal I had set up with the National Guard was I would deploy in the summertime, um, but uh, I was made available or they wouldn't. Sorry, they would they would I would make myself available for the summer in the summertime to deploy. I was also available in the spring to train but during the fall, during football season. Um, they kind of let me just play football. They didn't require anything of me. They, they understood what I was doing. And so every summer I would go overseas. And so that year, you know, I was, I was heading overseas. I talked to, to Mac Brown, who was the head coach at the time. I, I, I said, coach can, when I come back, is there any way I can try out for the long snapping position? And he was like, have you ever long snapped before? And I said, coach, I never played football before I got here. Um, but, uh, I've been practicing and I'm going to keep practicing over the summer. I just love an opportunity to, to, to try out for it. That's all, you know? And he was like, of course, you know, when you come back, uh, uh you know, the, st the starting snapper the year before had graduated and same with the backup, they were both seniors. So it was an open, it was an open position. So I, I, uh, I went overseas and practice and came back. Um, there was about 10 of us that were trying to be the long snapper. 
you know, it was backup linebackers and tight ends and, you know, a couple people that were recruited strictly for long snapping. And uh, I made it all the way to, to second to the backup uh, on the depth chart before the start of the season. And in the first game, the starting long snapper had a, a couple uh, bad snaps. And so I got an opportunity the next week and, and uh, started for 38 straight games after that um, through my senior year. So it was a, it was awesome just to get that opportunity to get that shot. And uh, yeah, I, I, I loved it. I loved, uh, I loved getting out there and, and uh, just finding a, just, just like I said, finding a way on the field, having a place like that, it was perfect. Um, you know, you only play about 10, 15 snaps a game, but they do matter. And you got to be, you got to be consistent. You got to be accurate. You have to set up that punter or that kicker for success. And you've got to rely on the, the guards next to you. Um, and they have to rely on you uh, when you're, you know, protecting a kick. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very much like a, a military training operation, you know, being out there. Uh, obviously nobody's really shooting at you and it's not life or death, but when you play at a place like Texas, sometimes it feels like life and death. <laughs> now, uh, Nate, one of the more controversial stories that have captivated the NFL over the past decade has been the anthem protests by several players, including Colin Kaepernick. Now you've had a kind of a more, you know, you have a unique perspective when it comes to, you know, the, the kneeling matter in terms of the national anthem, but you actually wrote an article that addressed the issue and even met with Colin shortly after your article was published. So, you know, looking back, can you share with our audience just a little bit about, you know, what that experience was like, you know, writing that article, meeting with Colin and kind of sharing your unique perspective on the matter? Yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was before the election in 2016. And, um, I mean, the reason I wrote the letter, the open letter to Colin was just because he was, he was sitting on the bench, uh, in, in, you know, in protest of police brutality and racial inequality and social uh, injustice. And there was this, you know, the, the news at that time and still today uh, likes to take a, a narrative and kind of run with it. So it depended on which station you were watching, how they sort of crafted this message about what he was doing. And, uh, and it was frustrating because it was like, you know, I, I, those symbols are very special to me. They mean a lot to me, but that's because of my experience because of what I did in the military and because of the, you know, carrying a casket with my, my best friend in it, that's draped in an American flag. Like that's, yeah, that's going to mean something different to me. When I hear the anthem, uh, I get emotional, but that's because of my experience because of what I did. And not everybody's going to feel that way. And at the same time, like I don't have the same experience in America uh, that everybody else does, uh, specifically uh, people of color that feel differently. I feel like they don't count the same. They don't matter. And regardless of what you or I, I think as individuals, if there's people out there that feel that way, then I want to do something to try and alleviate that pain and fix it and, and be a part of a solution. So like, what can I do? Um, the best thing I could probably do at this point was just, uh, or at that point and, and at this point is just to listen and try to understand try to empathize in some way. Um, and I went back and watched an initial interview of his where he talked about why he wouldn't stand for the anthem um, when the song is played. And it was about uh, uh, accountability or lack thereof in, you know, in, in law enforcement when something like this happens, when uh, some, you know, an, an unarmed uh, uh, black man was shot, you know, and it, it, to me, it doesn't matter 
how many times. If it happens one time, it's bad, it's wrong, and it should be addressed, it should be fixed. Those people shouldn't be protected. Um, and there was a lot of you know controversy around that, um, and especially his platform, controversy of him choosing to do it during the anthem. But for me, like I understand why. I didn't like it, it hurts me to see that, but that's, that's it's, a protest is not meant to be comfortable. It's meant to get people talking and thinking and maybe angry. And, uh, and that's exactly what it accomplished. And so it was a successful protest in that regard. And uh, I wrote this open letter to him just saying, hey, this is why I feel the way I feel. But um, at the end of the day, I took the oath when I joined the military to defend the Constitution, which includes the First Amendment, freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And that's what you're doing. Well, I can respect that, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, and Colin ended up reaching out to me and wanting to meet. So we met uh, in the team hotel before their final preseason game in 2016. And he asked me if there was another way that he could protest that wouldn't offend people in the military. I told him there's nothing you can do that's not going to offend some people. It's just the way that is. But if it was up to me, you know, I, I would uh, I would say being alongside your teammates is probably a, a pretty important thing to do in this moment, you know, instead of sitting on the bench by yourself. And he agreed. So we came up with kneeling alongside his teammates instead of sitting on the bench. And that's where the kneeling came from. And I stood next to him that night. There was people in the crowd that were booing during the anthem, which to me is far more disrespectful than somebody taking a knee. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's where that sort of came from. And obviously things changed a lot this last year with George Floyd and it being much more visible a lot more people opened their eyes to it and understood like this is a real issue that we need to fix um and you know that's sort of where we're at now as you wrap the interview up nate you know looking at your life now and, and some of the things that you're dedicating yourself with your you know public and private endeavors what are some of your current things that you're involved with and what are some of your future goals you'd still like to accomplish yeah so mvp is sort of the biggest one that's it stands for merging vets and players uh, I started it, uh, co-founded it with Jay Glazer back in 2015. And we bring together combat vets, former professional athletes, and help, help them find purpose in that new mission when the uniform comes off, you know. We identify, both groups identify so much with that uniform, whether it's camouflage or a jersey. And, uh, and that locker room is very similar as well. The camaraderie, um, the brotherhood, the, uh, um, you know, just the, the, the sense of belonging that we lose when the uniform comes off and we're often in our twenties and thirties. If we're lucky, it's over. We feel like we peaked and we'll never be great again. So we bring these groups together to find that greatness once again and realize uh, who we are, remember who we are, embrace our scars um, and, and understand that we're different and that's not a bad thing. Like different is good. So that's, that's sort of the biggest thing I'm working on. I've got quite a few other projects in film and television space and uh, a clean water project. I work with uh, Chris Longone called Water Boys, where we uh, we dig water wells in East Africa um, with other NFL players and, and veterans. We'll, we'll go climb Mount Kilimanjaro every year and raise money for that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm always, I've always got something cooking. <laughs> I'm not one of these people that kind of sits around and waits for something to happen. 